0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 7, that's our scripture reading, Isaiah 43, 1 to 7, and then our sermon passage is John chapter 6 verses 16 to 21, again John chapter 6 verses 16 to 21, that's our uh, sermon passage. So, scripture reading, Isaiah 43, 1-7, sermon passage, John chapter 6, verses 16-21. to Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to read along with me, but I also encourage you to give your full attention to listening, to hearing God's Word as it is read to you. This is the Lord speaking to you. This is His voice, not your pastors, not the man on your screens or standing in front of you. This is the voice of the Lord Isaiah 43, 1-7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Now turning, if you will, to John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because, of a, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your almighty power that is on display in these passages of Scripture that we have just read, that we've just heard. We thank you, O Lord, that you are the God who controls the wind of the waves. As powerful as a great storm at sea truly is, O Lord, you are even more powerful than that. Lord, we thank you for your love for your people and the fact that you have given to us your word. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us from your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the late fall, early winter of the year 2000, after about six months at sea, the battalion that I was with that had gone on a Mediterranean deployment, a largely uh, uneventful Mediterranean deployment, but it still had a few uh, moments of, of, of interesting things happen. No action, of course. Uh, we set off the, the coast of, of uh, Croatia and uh, the former Yugoslavian states and waited for Slobodan Milosevic to be captured. And just in case we needed to go in and do something about it, we uh, did gator squares off in the Adriatic Sea. But on the way back, as we were traveling back, we were nearly home. We had uh, come across the Mediterranean uh, Sea from the easternmost parts. Uh, we had spent our time in Rota, Spain, doing the washdown to make sure that our, the vehicles that had gone on uh, foreign soils uh, were clean. And we cleaned out all of our gear to make sure we weren't bringing back any uh, sort of uh, uh, organism that would infest uh, uh, our, uh, the United States. Uh, And we had made about a two-weeks trip across the Atlantic Ocean, and right as we were uh, maybe a few hundred miles off of the coast of North Carolina, a nor'easter came tearing uh, uh, to the north uh, from the south. And in the ship that we were on, which was not that big, but far bigger than the boat that that the disciples would have been in on the Lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, uh, we were we were thrown about. We almost had to lash ourselves into our racks uh, in the birthing areas of the ship and stay there for hours uh, uh, waiting for this storm to pass. And uh, so the the five or 600 of us who were on that ship uh, got a real taste of what weather at sea can be like. Well, that hopefully will serve as a little bit of an introduction today to this passage. So quite different circumstances, but some similarities as well. Now, just to give us a little bit of the context of the passage that we're in, in the preceding passage in John's Gospel, earlier in chapter 6, Jesus had just miraculously fed a huge crowd of people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if if you can picture the Sea of Galilee in your mind, it's not quite a perfect circle by any stretch, but it's somewhat of an oblong sea. And thinking of this, if you're looking at me as the, as the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, the western part of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is, Jesus and his disciples had been probably down on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee after they had traveled up from Jerusalem. Uh, and after they uh, he fed the people there uh, on the, the, the southeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, he became aware of the fact, he began to, to, to know, he knew because he's God, he knew that the people, because of this amazing miracle that he had performed, that, that they were about to take him by force and make him king. And so though Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, though he uh, truly was one who was in the line of, uh, and lineage of David, his time had y- yet, not yet come. And of course, he, wasn't, uh, he did not come to the earth. He did not come to be a man in order to be an earthly king uh, anyway. And so after the crowds had dispersed, after Jesus had gone away from them, he withdrew from them, went up to the mountain on a different side where they couldn't find him, and the crowds dispersed, Jesus' twelve disciples went down to the water, and they got into a boat, and they started back across the sea while Jesus remained on the mountain, now again, the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee is probably where they were. They're headed to the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum was. And so they were pretty much making a traverse of the entire uh, sea there, around, around 10 miles, give or take. Somewhere between 8 and 10 miles, give or take. Well, This morning's passage tells how Jesus caught up with the disciples as they made their way across the sea. And it contains one of Jesus' best-known Miracles. It's a miracle that in many ways popular culture, the wider society, has been fascinated with. And so there are certain uh, types of, of lizards that, uh, that can walk across water or more, more properly run across water. And sometimes they're referred to as Jesus lizards. There are uh, movies and television shows that, that sort of show people walking across water. Um, but, of course, because this miracle is so well known, there are plenty of people who try to discount that Jesus walked on water at all. And some of those who discount these things, they offer a naturalistic explanation of it. They say that Jesus was just walking on rocks right under the surface, or he was walking on the shore. Others say that this miracle is a myth, that it didn't happen in any form whatsoever, that it is intended to show how the difficulties of life can be overcome. Now, certainly, this story shows how Jesus gives help to those who are in need, but it's not metaphorical or symbolic. Jesus is only able to help us when we are in need if he is the God of all creation who became man. As we work our way through the sermon today, I ask you to to consider this thought. Jesus is able to rescue those who are in the midst of the storms of life because he is God who controls the wind and the waves. I'll say that again. Jesus Christ is able to rescue those who are in the midst of the storms of life because he is God who controls the wind and the waves. The sermon today has three points. The first point is every stormy wind. The second point, reason for fear. And the third point, do not be afraid. Again, first point, every stormy wind. The second, reason for fear. And the third, do not be afraid. So let's look at the first point now, every stormy wind. Verses uh, 16 and 17 say that when evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the Sea of Galilee. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. And it also says that it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, as we've seen before, you read through the Gospels, you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see that, that John in many ways stands alone. John makes reference to this himself when he says that he he set out to write something that was somewhat of a different account than the other other gospel writers. And, And he acknowledges that he could have written far, far more about what Jesus said and did because there are not enough books in the world to contain all of the things that Jesus said and did. And so there is a great amount of material in John that isn't found in the other three gospels. But since Matthew and Mark both include the account of Jesus walking on water after he fed the 5,000, why did John choose to include it as well? Well, the answer in part lies in the fact that it is integral to the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. But also, more practically, it tells us how Jesus returned to his disciples after they would set off across the sea. And it also provides an answer for the crowds of people who questioned how Jesus came to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the boat with his disciples when the people saw that the disciples had left without Jesus. They knew he had left that southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and then when they make their way around to the other side, they see that Jesus is arriving uh, with his disciples in the boat. Chapter 6, verse 24 says that the crowds of people who were part of the 5,000 whom Jesus fed followed Jesus to Capernaum in boats that had come in overnight. And so the people then become witnesses to the truth of this miracle, some 5,000 or more of them. Well, in addition to all of these very practical and good reasons for John, including this, uh, this account, this narrative in his gospel, there is also a theological uh, reason for including the miracle, this miracle in his gospel. Commentator D.A. Carson says that it is tied to the general Exodus theme of the preceding verses. You might not have, have noticed this in the beginning of chapter 6. Really, flowing all through chapter 6, you have this, this Exodus narrative and beyond. Jesus brings his people out, he takes them through the wilderness. He leads them now back across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And so you see that Jesus led his disciples as well as the multitude of people to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, much like Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Chapter 6, verse 2 says that a large crowd was following Jesus. They would have had to gone through the Jordan River to the east side, to the wilderness, to, in some ways, the places where God's people had wandered for those 40 years before they were able to enter into the promised land uh, at the end of Moses' life. Then Jesus fed the people, just as Moses helped to provide food for the Israelites in the desert. But now, unlike Moses, Jesus delivers his people into the promised land, which corresponds with his Old Testament namesake, Joshua. Joshua leading the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And so John is making the point here in his gospel that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus will go on to say later on in chapter 6 that he is the bread of life. He is the very manna of heaven. Greater than that which God's people found in the wilderness in Moses' day. Jesus got to enter the Promised Land with his people after having led them Through the waters. But whereas with Joshua the water was heaped up in a great mound so that the people walked across on dry land, in our passage the the water itself becomes like solid ground for Jesus, who treads upon it as if it were a road. Turning to verse 18, we find out that strong winds have kicked up and the sea has gotten rough. At around 600 feet below sea level, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater body of water in the world. The only body of water that has a lower elevation is the Dead Sea, which is a saltwater sea, and it's around 1,400 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by hills and mountains. It's it's almost like a a bowl surrounds the Sea of Galilee. And, And quite frequently, cool air from the southeast will rush in and down onto the surface of the lake. And it displaces the warm water that has settled there and the warm air that has settled there. And it turns up the water into a violent squall. This happens even to this day. And these squalls happen quickly. They happen with very little warning. They catch fishermen. They catch people out on the sea completely off guard and they leave them in extremely dangerous conditions. You now in Matthew's account in chapter 14 verse 24, he makes it very clear that the disciples' boat was a long way from land. It wasn't somehow near the shore. John says in our passage in verse 19 that the disciples had already rowed three or four miles from the eastern shore, so they were about halfway across the sea, give or take. The disciples would have been just justified in being fearful in the midst of a storm or a squall like this, but there's no mention of their being afraid because of the storm. that leads us to point number two, reason for fear. Verse 19 says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now they're frightened. They weren't frightened from the storm. They were frightened because they saw someone walking on the sea. Understandably so, I would say. Now for some people, they hear this, and their inner skeptic kicks in. They start looking for some other explanation for what has happened. Even Christians here, we're not talking about those who, who don't believe God's word, but even Christians, you read this, you, you hear it, and you think, well, wait, there's got to be some other more plausible explanation than that Jesus actually walked on top of the water. And so over the years, there have been presented a number of naturalistic explanations for what happened. Surely, truly must have happened, Such a, some of which we've already mentioned. Jesus was walking on rocks that were just under the surface. The water was actually shallow where Jesus was. The storm had blown the boat close to the shore, and Jesus was walking on the beach, but it looked like he was walking on the water. And then, of course, there are those who say that none of this actually happened at all, that the whole thing is a myth intended to be understood allegorically. One person writes, actually, it is neither a natural or supernatural story. It is myth. Not myth as in complete fiction, but similar to the story of Jesus' resurrection, parable with the intent of conveying a deeper meaning or lesson. It is a history-like story trying to convey some truth. It is, in other words, allegorical. And then this same writer continues saying that the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee stand for life's trials. And just as Jesus could rise above them and stroll across, so can others who follow him. Now that may sound familiar to you to a lot of the kind of preaching that goes on today in a, with a passage like this. But the writer just quoted is an atheist. You might wonder why it's so important for him to think of Jesus as a great example, but not believe that he is God. And that is the issue. Because if Jesus is not God, there is no ultimate point to the story. The only reason that some folks feel like they have to come up with an explanation about Jesus walking on the water that doesn't include him actually walking on the water is because they have started from the position that Jesus isn't God, that he can't be God. And if Jesus isn't God, he can't walk on water. He is not God, they believe. Therefore, he cannot possibly walk on water. And so there must be some other reason why this story is in the Bible. But if Jesus is not God, you can all, well, well I was going to say you could pack up now and go home. But most of you are already at home. You can all give up now. Because the Christian faith is fraudulent if Jesus is, is not God. If Jesus could not possibly have walked on water, then the Christian faith is not worth following And so the ultimate reason that John includes this passage in his gospel is to definitively demonstrate that Jesus is God. Only God could walk on the water as if it were dry land. And if Jesus is God, which we believe that he is, and which John wants to demonstrate to us, then you have a duty, I have a duty, we have a duty to worship him. But we also have a duty to trust that when your life gets stormy, that Jesus can meet you in the midst of it. That he can deliver you to more, to, to, safely to more solid ground. This story of Jesus is of no comfort to us if Jesus is not God. But it offers every comfort to us if Jesus is God. God. It was interesting that in the, each of the accounts in Matthew and Mark and in our passage here in John, the disciples aren't described as being frightened or afraid until they see Jesus walking on the water toward them. They were clearly capable of becoming fearful on the sea, even though so many of them were seasoned fishermen. But we see the, in the account of Jesus when he the other account when he was on the, on the ocean, he's sleeping in the boat, and, and the people become, the, the disciples have become very fearful there. So they're capable of being fearful. But here, no fear is mentioned until they see Jesus. And Matthew and Mark add the detail about uh, that the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost. It was the only way that their brains could process what they were seeing. But we, we might also add that fear is a natural reaction when coming face to face with the living God. At that moment, when they first saw Jesus walking toward them, they didn't know what they were witnessing. But what they were witnessing was the God of creation showing his mastery over creation. So whether they understood what they were seeing or not, they were right to be afraid when they saw this. And that brings us to the third point, the final point of the sermon today. Do not be afraid. <clears throat> Matthew and Mark are almost identical to John in recording what Jesus says. In our passage, Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. Matthew and Mark have the additional words at the beginning, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Jesus knows they are afraid and they should be afraid. And yet he tells them not to be afraid because it is he, Jesus, who approaches them. Now, if you're out on the sea and you see somebody walking towards you on the water there's only one reason for you not to be afraid when you witness this event taking place, especially on a dark, stormy night. It just so happens that Jesus' disciples had this one reason not to be afraid, but they didn't know it at the moment when they first saw him walking toward them. The one reason, of course, is if the person who is walking toward you on the water in a dark, stormy sea just happens to be the one true God who loves you. Any other reason and you are completely justified in being afraid. As we've seen already, the the reason the disciples were afraid at first was because they thought Jesus was a ghost. But if Jesus isn't God, then they have every reason to be afraid. And a plausible explanation for their seeing a man walking on the water was that he was a ghost in the form of a man. Jesus' words, it is I, do not be afraid, were all that it took to calm their fears. Verse 21 says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The command Jesus gives them not to be afraid is rooted in the fact that he, the Son of God, has come to them. And we've said that the only reason the disciples should not have been afraid is if the person walking in the water toward them was God who loves them. The disciples knew that Jesus was the one person who could make the chaotic waters calm. And so they welcomed him into their boat. They were relieved and thankful to see him. And he delivered them, as John says, immediately from it. He got them to the other shore. But an unbeliever might not be so welcoming. They might not be relieved at the sight of Jesus coming near their boat. The disciples, by this time, they knew Jesus. And though they were still ignorant uh, on many levels about who Jesus truly was, they were coming to grasp his nature. After all that he had done, all the signs and the wonders that he had performed, when they realized it was him and not a a ghost, they probably thought, of course Jesus can walk on water. Look at everything else Jesus has done. And so because of their faith in Jesus, when he commanded them not to be afraid, they obeyed his command. But for the person who does not believe, for the person who doesn't know Jesus, the sight of him walking on water would be very frightening indeed, and the words, it is I, do not be afraid, would not hold any comfort for them. The unbeliever cannot obey the command not to be afraid. Jesus' approach causes fear for the unbeliever, not relief, because it demonstrates that he is God. God. And if they do not repent and believe in him, he will judge them for their sins and they will be punished for eternity. And so your only options are to believe that he is God and therefore capable of walking on the water or not to believe. That it's all just made up. Despite many attempts to find middle ground, there isn't any. Psalm 93 verse 4 says, God is mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the wave of the seas. And Psalm 29 verse 10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. What these two psalms are saying, what they're making clear is that God rules over and subdues chaotic waters. And as Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 7 made clear, when we pass through waters, through difficult times, God is there with us. When we walk through raging rivers, they will not overwhelm us. The Bible shows us that God is master of chaotic waters. He subdues them. He gives protection to his people in the midst of them. So our passage in John shows us that Jesus is God because he too is the master of the winds and the waves. And just as he controls the winds and waves, he also has control over the metaphorical storms in your life. And so there is a way that we can take what we learn from this passage and we can apply it to our lives today. Now again, I don't know if you know someone at this point in your lives, a personal relationship with someone who has been infected with the virus that's going around. But, But not one of us is completely unaffected by what's going on. Some of us are in the midst of very serious trials, very profound and dangerous storms right now. And it's very easy to become afraid when the trials come. We're averse to them. We don't like to be tested. When we face difficulties, when illnesses or tragedies strike, when pandemics break out, we become anxious. We become afraid. That's a very human reaction. We are creatures, after all, we're not the creator. And these storms of life, they serve to remind us of the fact that we are mere creatures, that we were formed out of the dust of the ground. But the Christian must remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the boat. It is I. Do not be afraid. The command for you not to be afraid is rooted in the fact that the Son of God has come to you. He hasn't left you in your isolation. He hasn't left you to be lonely. He is here with you. And so you can obey Jesus' command do not be afraid, because Jesus is with you. When you go through trials in your life, He is right there by your side. As Isaiah 43, verse 4 says, you are precious in His eyes and honored, and He loves you. Therefore, do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He loves us, and he will rescue you and me from the rising floodwaters, from the storms of life, from the fiery trials that we face on a daily basis. Jesus is God, and he is good, and he is loving. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this reminder from your word that though we all face many storms in life of various kinds, and at this point in our lives, many of us are facing a very similar storm in one way or another, we thank you for this reminder that Jesus is God, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are the one who has control over the storms that come upon us so suddenly. We pray that you would help us not to be afraid. We pray that you would give us the ability by your spirit to obey this command. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the truth, of the fact, of the reality, that you are with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.